think of it, the brain of a dead man, waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands. Let's have one final test. Throw the switches. everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and it is that time of year once again. <laughs> it is October. Yes. It is time for haunts and monsters and frights. It's the, it's the season of spooky and spoopy. And in keeping with that theme, I'm starting out with another classic movie that I've showed Ian. Oh my goodness, this is the classic of classics. Well, we last year we watched the 1931 Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. And there's only one movie that we could put in that same category. That's that, it. We've watched The Wolfman. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a bad movie, and we'll okay. get to that. But okay. Me, but first, we're watching another movie also from 1931. Yes. Frankenstein. The classic Frankenstein film. The, uh, another universal monster movie produced by Carl Lemley Jr., part of that great pantheon of classic monster movies. <sighs> it's, this is another one where it's like, I don't think I've ever sat down and watched it before this, but my goodness, cultural osmosis. It's funny, it has a similar place for me, too, because it's not a movie that I, I never, I don't remember the first time I saw Frankenstein. I just remember this movie being part of the world, part of the universe I grew up in. It was on local TV frequently. My big brother, Paul, loved watching it, so we would watch it whenever we could when it was on Channel 9, I think it was, had the rights to that at the time. Okay. And... It was just always there. And I know that I had seen the movie in its entirety at least a couple of times by the time I was 13 years old. But I couldn't tell you when is the first time I actually sat down and watched it. And there is something about this, which I'll admit, but that same cultural osmosis that makes it exciting and the fact that you had sat down and watched it is the same reason I don't think I ever had. There's something about this film that is so ubiquitous, it felt, or it feels like it is either untouchable or already too touched. It's like, this is something where it's like, almost every scene has been recreated, referenced, parodied, and it has become such a, a referenced text that messing or discussing it is going to relate to everything else that references it and referencing it is going to overlap with someone else referencing it elsewhere. And I think everybody, or at least everybody who's keyed into certain parts of our culture, everyone has the sense of having seen this movie, whether or not they have ever sat down and watched it in its entirety. Yeah, exactly. And because of that, I think that people tend to have their perceptions of this movie altered by all of the other versions of Frankenstein they may have been exposed to, all of the expectations they have about this movie. 
And I even found myself sitting down and watching this from the beginning for the first time in, in quite some time. There were things that I forgot were in this movie or things that I forgot were not in this movie or that they had changed for this movie. And, and that's interesting to take this as this cultural phenomenon, but also step back or maybe lean forward and say, let's pay attention to this movie as a movie, as if we had never seen it before. Yeah. And there's something else I want to note when we're starting out about this film in that same sense, taking it as a film all on its own. It is not even a direct adaptation in some ways of the thing it's based on. That's absolutely correct. Do you have a paper ball handy to throw at me? Because I am in danger of talking too much about the novel in trying to talk about this movie. But I guess we have to if we're going to talk about how this works as an adaptation. Yeah, it's kind of unavoidable because we're going to have to go through the characters, but I want to get this like overarching theme in general. This is a very different take on the hubris of man. Yeah, I I kind of have to say up front, however well you think this movie does or doesn't work as a movie, it's not a good adaptation of Shelley's Frankenstein. No, it completely is not a modern Prometheus. In that sense, it's a very different story. This version of Victor Frankenstein is not the same sort of guy. Yeah, and he's not Victor Frankenstein. He's Henry Frankenstein. Yeah. I guess they needed something more English and American sounding I'm, than I'm, Victor. I'm getting very, we can't call our banner Bruce kind of flashbacks in that sense. <laughs> I think Although, so. Although I guess that's a flash forward. Time is weird with podcasts that go- do things in whatever order we want. But this is much more commentary on science and technology in 1931 than it is anything else. Yes, they definitely updated it in most respects to be a contemporary story. A, a modern-day retelling of the Frankenstein story, where there are electric lights in the university, anatomy theater, etc., etc. This is from the same year where Thomas Edison submits his last patent, where the Empire State Building is completed, where the Iron Lung is first perfected. This is a very different age of science and engineering kind of literal year and time period. And this is making more of a commentary on that than it is the things that the book was. That That is interesting. It really is a year with another definitive step into the 20th century as we later knew it. Right. If... <laughs> If if the book is talking about the psychological toll that doing this would enact on people, both created by God and created by man in that sense, as the book likes to do, this is a book, this is a movie about unbridled science steamrolling over a whole lot of everyone else, I think. I think that, yeah, Shelley put a lot of her meaning of the book in her subtitle, A Modern Prometheus. Yeah. And I think that this 1931 movie is a movie that's mainly about the importance of work-life balance. 
Oh my goodness, the only thing missing from this movie to turn it into a Disney Channel original is a teenage kid to get his dad, Victor, to actually come to the soccer game instead of staying in the office. <laughs> oh no. Now you mentioned Disney, it's a little bit like the absent-minded professor in that it's Henry's work that is keeping him from his fiance, who would like to get married one of these days. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And yet... Now I'm just imagining a uh, a, a uh, Frankenstein's monster that can jump with the assistance of Flubber. <laughs> uh, boing! Uh, boing! You say that loud enough and Disney will make a version of it. Yay! Medford College Extended Universe keeps going! <laughs> it seems to me in this movie, they're not as clear or not as direct about there was something inherently wrong with what Dr. Frankenstein was trying to do. Because this movie introduces that idea of it was the wrong brain that was put into the monster, and that's where all the problems took place. He was supposed to get the brain of this perfectly sane, capable, intelligent person, and instead Fritz, not Igor, Fritz, drops the brain he was supposed to get and instead takes the next nearest one, which was a... a deranged criminal brain. As if, well, if only the assistant hadn't made a mistake, everything would have been fine. There's no culpability on Frankenstein's part, except working too hard on this project instead of taking it easy and getting married and all these things (laughs) other people expected him to do. Just take that scene and fade into an ad for LinkedIn about actually properly looking for your right employee before you hire them. It, it, this is the the episode where we could get that sponsorship from from Indeed. We could. <laughs> we absolutely could. That'd be amazing, actually. And to me, that that undercuts a lot of what the story could be by taking a lot of heat off of of Doctor Frankenstein. Yeah, it's it's dismissive in that sense. It's an easy out, an easy explanation that gets our. Our, our, I don't want to call him a protagonist. Our, our motivating force made flesh. In it, it, it yeah. gives him an out in a way that I don't think is healthy at times. Yeah, I w- and I would definitely say that that Frankenstein is a is the protagonist here. He may be an antihero, but he's the person whose struggle we are watching. Good point. But. And this is the road I'm, I was afraid of going down because it is, I'm judging the story of the movie primarily on what it does or doesn't do relative to the book. So maybe we should back up and talk about what is the story that this movie tells? Yeah. And, and how, how does that stand on its own feet? And that's difficult to do, but I think it, it, it at least gives this movie a fighting chance. So the story of this is that in the Bavarian Alps, Henry Frankenstein and his assistant Fritz are digging up freshly buried bodies and piecing together a person in order to fulfill Henry's plan of proving he can rebring about life, kind of in to spite the college that doesn't quite like him, I'm guessing. Like, I, that was a little difficult. Yeah, I don't know if it was despite them, but it was definitely in spite of them. Yeah. they He was far beyond what anyone could teach him at the medical school, what any of his his scientific colleagues 
thought was possible or worth pursuing. You ever transferred schools and because of policy had to take a 101 class when you'd finished a 104 at your previous <laughs> place and you decide that when that midterm project comes in, you are going to absolutely decimate them with a project way beyond the scope of the request just to prove you shouldn't be here and that doesn't actually work out well that's what happens <laughs> instead here as we learn a little bit into the movie from uh, dr waldman who was one of uh henry frankenstein's teachers frankenstein wanted bodies for his experiments and he wanted fresh bodies in good condition and he didn't think people needed to be too particular about where they came from or how they were obtained. And there was a point at which the university didn't want anything to do with this. Uh, yeah, no. So hence, he's he's out there with, uh, with Fritz harvesting fresh graves and newly used gallows. And right here, just in terms of getting an idea of the, the way this is all presented... There is something about the the acting in this film that w makes me, for some reason, scream claymation, despite being <laughs> live action. Everyone is the right kind of, like, exaggerated. Like, everyone was given this direction on how to be dramatic that comes across slightly stutter-stepped and the proper amount of overemphasized at times that makes them feel like he wanted fresh bodies. Oh, a couple of dogs and cats are fine, right? No, human bodies. It's like, why are you, your pauses and such, it's just a little odd, and I understand the dramatic element of it, but my goodness, did it feel stop motion or animated like that. It reminded me of Wallace and Gromit. It also makes sense if you think about it in the context of the development of film. Because this is not too many years after talkies began. Yeah. This is only 1931. A lot of the people who were making movies, a lot of the people who were, were acting in movies, didn't have a lot of experience in, in talkie movies just because they hadn't been around very long. So what I think we're seeing in a movie like this, in a lot of movies of those very early 30s, is this combination of silent movie acting and stage acting, yeah, each of which is broad in a different way. Silent movie acting tends to have the, the slightly broad acting, but also these punctuations of dialogue, because you need a place to put the intercard to show what they're saying. Oh, uh, yeah. So it might the, these overly dramatic pauses had a purpose. And the, you add stage acting, which of course has to be big and broad because it has to carry to the back of the room. It all works very differently in a talky movie. And in some early 30s movies, like Dracula, it works because it adds this sense of unreality. I th Dracula had this aura of unreality around him that changed any room he walked into. The horror in Frankenstein, including how this movie conveys it, is the realness and the concreteness of the, oh, wow, this is like actually happening. Somebody in the next county could be actually doing this because things are changing so quickly when it comes to science. You've got a good point there. In I guess I, yeah, I didn't notice it in the Dracula film because when you're dealing with the old and the classic, you're dealing with something where that extra drama feels antique. 
But when you're dealing with something that's trying to comment on modern science, the 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 stutteriness makes it feel not smooth. It 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 shows up more. It's it's a contrast. Yeah, it's they're both stylized. They're both stylized in very similar ways. It seems stylized in a, such a very different way when it comes to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But thinking about this being a movie from 1931, I think it's also important to think sometimes about how this might have impacted audiences then. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 2022. We are spoiled for horror movies. We're spoiled for depictions of Frankenstein. And I'm trying to imagine somebody who hasn't seen a lot of talkie movies going into a theater and seeing this. And I could see where so much of this, especially that opening, would be just legitimately horrifying. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that the beginning of the movie breaks the fourth wall by having uh, Edward Van Sloan, the guy who plays Dr. Waldman, step out from behind a curtain and essentially warn the audience that this is a movie is a horrifying experience. And if you are subject to heart conditions or nervous fright or anything else that might be agitated... We've, we're, we're warning you now. This is your chance. Yeah. And that's kind of hokey, and it was at the time. It's, you know, they're trying to hype up the movie. But it's true that this movie would have been just so ghastly and horrifying, I think, in a way that we probably don't appreciate, given how many movies of how many types have come since. Mm-hmm. But you've got a guy crawling through graveyards in his little stooped over assistant digging up fresh graves and cutting people down from gallows so they can haul them back to a laboratory yeah that's kind of creepy stuff oh yeah if we're okay if we're talking about creepy stuff i'm going to get something to the audience myself and that's going to be the fact that there's a part that kind of shut me off of this movie but that's because of things with me everyone has things that'll bother them Some of them are general. Some of them are specific. I've struggled for a long time with depictions of the brain. It is an immediate worry and trigger for me. And so there are parts of this movie that I did not watch for that. That I look away. I glanced down. I couldn't watch. I've gotten a lot better dealt with that phobia. And it's worth it to do so, to be able to review media and such. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hit you. And so, especially if that's a specific version, but if I didn't have a general sense of what horror was going to be like in that sense, I can try to extrapolate what that's like, and I can definitely understand how this movie that would just show something like that on the screen sometimes suddenly could really, really get you to tense up and freak you out. I just happen to have something where even general desensitization. I haven't been able to turn that one off enough. So that's an instance where I I think I can try to use that to relate to what the audiences there were, and I can definitely get why it needed a warning at the start. And that's a good point. There, uh, There are a couple of levels at which we all come to things like horror movies. It's the general, what is scary within our culture. There's the specifics, what is scary in this story. But then there are all the very detailed things that are going to hit individuals very differently and different movies because of some specific depiction that they have are going to hit people differently. Mm-hmm. And that's important to, to remember when we ad- address uh, horror movies. 
Absolutely. And I also kind of wanted to say that because there's going to be parts where you're, you've watched it and I'm kind of not there. So as we continue forward, we're getting towards it. Yeah. I wanted to state that. So we have this sense in terms of what Henry Frankenstein is doing. He is building this creature out of body parts that he's harvested from various freshly dead corpses. And he is putting in it a brain that he's stolen from the university. And he doesn't know, at least not at the beginning, that it's not the brain that he told Fritz to get. It's the criminal brain. And he is planning to animate this creature that he has made to give it life. And meanwhile, he has other responsibilities that he's supposed to be attending to. He is the son of a baron who, therefore, he's going to inherit political responsibilities. He is engaged to the beautiful Elizabeth, played by May Clark. And by the way, it's Colin Clive playing Henry Frankenstein. And he keeps putting off their, their wedding because he has to focus on his work, which he's conducting in a, a castle some distance from where he's supposed to be living. And so much of the other people's worry about him and their concern is about the fact that he's focused solely on his work, even before they really get to what is it he's working on. It's like, oh, can't you take a break? No, my work must come first. Oh. By the way, what is it? It's important. That's all you need to know. Yeah. It's actually, I think it's his friend, Victor. We've got the name Victor, who actually does the most questioning at first. Right. He's kind of assigned by by Elizabeth. And it's clear Victor's in love with Elizabeth also. Oh, absolutely. That he go and, and check on Henry because uh, Henry, uh, there's something wrong with Henry and we're supposed to be getting married. We haven't, et cetera. Yeah. This is a story about obsession in that sense. Yes. Where that his obsession with this work, with this project, is outstripping all these other responsibilities, and the, his science is not being tempered by rational thought or control on his part, and is being done slightly secret, so none of his friends can influence it either. But they do eventually, because Victor and Elizabeth eventually go to Dr. Waldman, Henry's teacher, and that's when they learn about henry's strange interests even when he was a student and the three of them together go to the castle where henry is working with fritz on this grand project and his professor is played by edward van sloan who we saw as van helsing in dracula terrific performance in uh, in dracula because he could stand toe-to-toe with bella lugosi's dracula and, and so, a good performance in this yeah where he's standing as a disgruntled authority figure against what he finds out later once he's in there. He's, he plays confident men, man thrown to the deep end quite well. <laughs> so the three of them interrupt Henry when he is about to conduct the, the final part of his great project. So they get to witness it. Honestly, it's like bursting into someone's place and not only... Are they in the middle of something? They have a PowerPoint presentation to tell you about what it is they're doing. Because <laughs> he's got like, he's a little too 
on the spot of like, oh no, I've got guests. Come, watch me become God. (laughs) And that's an interesting bit of tension we see in the character of Henry is that he wants to be left alone to do this work. But he also really wants people to understand the work he's doing and how impressive it is and how awesome that means he is. I'm a loner. Praise me. (laughs) Yes. I I can't do both, dude. (laughs) And this is where we've seen it in his preparations, but where this is where that set of Frankenstein's laboratory Uh, really, really shines. And that is an impressive set with impressive effects for 1931. My goodness, the giant wall of levers and gears and pipes and lights and the giant chain bed that rises up towards the lightning. There's so much iconic about that. And there is so much style and design that comes from like that, that originates from this set design. And all of the, the, the Jacob's ladders and the arcing electricity and all the bright sparks and all of this again, very cutting edge seeming to me in 1931, that this is high tech. This is big metal engineering plus lots of electricity. Mm -hmm. That's high tech. Yeah, this is, (sighs) I I can't, I can't say my response there because that actually leads into later stuff. So, okay. Okay, yeah, but absolutely. This, this is this is the most modernist styling they've got in that. This is modern technology doing something incredible. It brings to mind some of the things you see in silent movies like Metropolis, which yeah. isn't a class by itself. But here we're seeing that brought into a modern talky horror movie. And all of it is juxtaposed against torchlight and stone brick. It is it is this modern stuff crammed into an ancient castle tower in oh. this old meets new. It's, you know, out in this exterior of the classical, of the traditional, of the of the established and sturdy, this dark new modern thing is being done. Interesting. That makes me think about what we discussed a few months ago when we watched a bunch of H.G. Wells adaptations. And we talked about the fact that you've got this high-tech, cutting-edge scientific engineering wrapped in this polished oak and tufted velvet design of Victorian England. Exactly. Here we've got, you're right, these high-tech electrical engineering things happening in the midst of this dank stone castle. Mm -hmm. it's that that juxtaposition of any kind like that is great exactly and and it's and remember it's doing all of this in black and white so you don't have any color juxtaposition you don't have an there's an entire set of more modern ways to put in contrast of a a stylistic kind that modern movies will do to do this this one really doesn't have much but the contrast knob and a couple of design choices in terms of right angles versus natural stone in terms of bright overexposed lighting versus shadows that kind of curve or almost bubble the edge of the screen there's parts of this movie that are shot almost like they're peering through something and then it'll cut to this big wide open space with points so bright they are pure white because of the light and the and the electricity crackling across it 
So it's doing this all with that limited palette, but so very precisely. And I think it's great to see this and think about it for its own sake, because again, that some of that imagery is something that has been used and reused and parodied over the decades, that it's fun to see, wow, this is innovative and impressive. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as the story goes, it's a success as far as it goes, the, uh, the, the project of, of Henry Frankenstein, because the creature does come to life. Yes. Oh, and apparently it's because of the the ray that Frankenstein has developed. And that's something that the book, I think, the novel, is studiously shy on details about what he discovered, how he can bring life. And different depictions of Frankenstein have come up with things to fill in when they, they decided they wanted to. This one in, in 1931... His he was talking to Professor Waldman about this, and like you remember how you told us at school that the there was the violet ray and the ultraviolet ray. Doctor Waldman, I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. I yeah, he's he's there talking about like there's something beyond violet, and I'm just like, I'm sorry. Did you just UV cure resin 3D print yourself a monster? <laughs> I know something about this. What did you just do? <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, that's. That is kind of 1931 techno babble, and I don't know that they really needed the techno babble. They could have just said, "I've discovered something that allowed me to imbue this with life and move on." Yeah, that 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 moment does kind of like lose it. It's a <laughs> it's a great manic acting. It's not great lines to deliver with that, but it does give us our monster finally rising off of the table and letting the sheet fall away. Played by Boris Karloff. Yes. And if you want an example, though, of how they're using a modern technology is the thing, this is the classic, like, bolt neck kind of design to some extent. Literally, in the, 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 the portrait of his face, this monster, are two giant pieces of steel engineering of, of the kind of, the kind of things that had just helped build an empire state building recently are sticking from this monster as proof of how it was made. They didn't have the terms, but we really are seeing a, well, I guess it's not cybernetic yet, but a a precursor to a cyborg. He is part man, part machine. I've just got very fast-paced, heavy bass techno going through my head for this moment. (laughs) Now I want the the mashup between Frankenstein and the Six Million Dollar Man, where... After Henry succeeds in his experiment, the monster goes on to be a superpowered secret agent. Absolutely. But now it doesn't go that way because no. the monster is kind of or the creature, it's kind of limited in what he can do, what he can understand. He can't communicate very well. He doesn't really have the power of speech. He he likes sunlight. He hates fire. Kind of basic 
ideas here. There's something very... You could kind of flip the opening out with a, we discovered a frozen caveman and thawed him and get a bit of the same movie from here out because the monster is of a... Of a fish out of water, but ridiculously strong and not that bright kind of styling that also gets applied to ancient humanoid in that sense. And I guess what turns him from being a creature and a blank slate to being a monster is the fact that probably because of the criminal brain that was used, he reacts to negative things violently. Yeah. So eventually they have to lock him up. Fritz, who's supposed to be caring for him, or at least, you know, taking care of him, abuses him and winds up getting killed by the, the creature, who then escapes. Although, he doesn't escape until after Henry decides, this has gone terribly. Elizabeth and my father are right. I'm going to go home. I'm going to marry Elizabeth. And this is, I'm done with this project. By the way, Dr. Waldman, you don't mind staying behind and taking this thing apart and disposing of it for me do you and dr waldman nice guy that he is says no nah, don't worry about it i got you yeah that's fine and uh, that doesn't go well for dr waldman no and that's the point at which yeah the the, the creature escapes also is it is that around the time when they decide one of the best tactics is to like mix up some very powerful drugs and tranquilizers and inject the monster to try to defeat and calm him yeah that's what they're doing for a while before they i think that's until fritz gets killed and they decide now we've got to take this thing apart the the speed at which they jump to uh trank and drug it is amazingly (laughs) quick and i'm going to be very honest here it gave me the feeling like oh well we've got all these drugs and tranquilizers lying around from when i was very very out of it building this plan (laughs) and needed tranquilizers to sleep in between working on this plan why don't we just use what i've got here (laughs) there's something very very don't you have a pile of this around enough to knock out something this large (laughs) <laughs> oh, just me? About the whole way they approach that. <laughs> and we then get a sequence of, on the one hand, Henry trying to move on with his normal life, and on the other hand, the creature out in the world on his own, knowing nothing, and trying to figure out what to do and, and, and where to go and how to behave. Mm-hmm. Including the very the, the great scene of, of, of horrible pathos in which he meets a little girl who doesn't judge him, wants to play with him with flowers, but he doesn't understand that you throwing flowers into the pond so that they float. Oh, a game is to take pretty things and throw them into the pond. He doesn't know that that only applies to flowers. This doesn't go well for the little girl. I'm fighting with myself the fact that that is honestly a serious and bad scene and the urge to say yeet. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, yeet was the scientist. (laughs) His creation is yeet's monster. Thank you. So, um, yeah, that kind of, um, kind of puts a damper on the, the, Wedding festivities, which the whole village is uh, uh, is 
enjoying. Yeah, every time they've been kind of talking about the wedding, we've gotten little clips throughout the rest of the film of like the town getting ready to some extent and a bit of like intermittent shots, I believe, before this. Because they'd established like people already like gathering, pausing their farming to come into the town. There's some beers going around. There's people already cheering and enjoying as they decorate. And he's the heir. Henry Frankenstein is the heir to the barony. So his father, the Baron, is footing the bill for this big party for the entire village. So they're having a great time. Oh yeah, the Baron's paying for his, <laughs> the Baron's paying for his rich and and educated son to take over. This is kind of like a we're going to get a giant party and hopefully a smart guy who will help us grow and modernize. This is going to be great, everybody. And, and then uh, the little girl's dad marches into town carrying her her lifeless body mm-hmm. and brings it to the 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 baron's mansion and ex- declares that my, my daughter's killed someone murdered her and the baron promises he will get justice exactly and meanwhile the monster has made it as far as the village yeah and breaks into elizabeth's room of course, she's getting ready for the wedding and chases her around, eventually leaves, but has apparently scared her half to the death so that she needs to convalesce for a while while the town hunts the monster. And Henry is helping to lead this hunt because he realizes what I created is wrong. It has to be destroyed. I have to be the one to do it. Yeah. This is, we're trying not to compare it to the book too much, I note. This is a much more active uh, uh, Dr. Frankenstein. This is one who joins the mob getting it out of town and going after it, instead of being terrified by his creation and running away and hiding in the same way. It's a very different kind of approach to his, his mistake of toying in this field. It's a, I must scrub this away, not a, oh no, how, how could I? Yeah, I, I guess, must sulk. And that makes sense for a movie. You want a more active and engaged hero. Yeah. So it has to be someone who's going to take charge and decide to do something. And at the same time, especially when this was made, there, have to be some, there has to be some sense of justice and some sense mm-hmm. of, of a, a balance of his actions and the consequences to him of his actions. Yeah. And that does come when he finds the monster and the monster knocks him out and carries him off and they end up in a windmill yeah, near town. And just as the, the, the crowd of, of monster hunters from the village kind of get to the windmill and lay siege to them and surround them there. And this is kind of that quintessential, I wouldn't say it's the first in movies, but it is this quintessential peasants with pitchforks and torches kind of scene. Oh, absolutely. This is, this is quintessential angry mob. And there are some great scenes at this point because the monster with Dr. Frankenstein running away from the mob, climbs up to the upper parts of this windmill. And then there's this amazing shot of the monster and Henry fighting on the balcony 
this deck outside the upper floor of this windmill. And you can see the crowd down below. Just something about the way that shot is composed. It is so dramatic. And you know something is building in intensity here. Mm-hmm. And to wrap up an entire piece of the, the meta-narrative here, the monster is, of course, bigger and stronger and throws Henry off of the windmill. And it is the windmill, this classic piece of technology that breaks his fall and he survives. The technology he went and went ahead with just literally dismissed him and the classic technology saved him. <laughs> just to run a through line oh, through there. I the, hadn't the thought about that balance, but I like it. The tried and true piece that was the village center was there. The villagers do burn all of it, new and old, and get and defeat the monster. Yeah, that they way. they torch the windmill, so the the monster is is destroyed by the thing he feared most, which is fire. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the earliest technology. Yeah, but it ends with this odd, like, well, that's done with, kind of happy note because he survived. He married his fiance, and they kind of are okay. Yeah, and the Baron finally gets to drink a toast, and uh, all apparently is well. We've learned our lesson. We don't have to tell any more of these stories. Yep, not going to do that again. Nope, except for the four other movies that Universal made. <laughs> yep. Because little do they know, the one thing that is more f that is fireproof is financial success. <laughs> but I got to say, that does kind of set up one of those early, like, sequel is possible kind of endings falling off a cliff being burned if you don't see the the monster or the bad guy die on screen there's a chance they didn't <laughs> i kind of think of this as the reichenbach windmill <laughs> yes it so is but it, it is such a dramatic ending and with so much of the movie involving just a couple of people or very few people in these claustrophobic places, to have it end with this giant crowd of people around this windmill, which seems to be standing in the, on, on this hill with nothing around it, because I, I guess windmills do. And the way that they, this is just ablaze, even in black and white, this fire, it is so dramatic. It really is. So we've we've talked about this movie in some detail. Earlier on in our discussion, we talked about some of the analysis that we often leave till later. But I guess uh, it, it is a movie, so we have to answer some questions about it. Hmm. Screen or no screen? I don't know what to say. Part of me says screen because, my goodness, it's classic. My goodness, there's so many other things that reference this, that use the imagery from this. This is quintessential. Screening it has value. Other parts of me just... I didn't find it a fun watch. It's slow at some parts. It's weirdly quick at others. Its ending is dramatic. And then ends on this weird, well, that's all of that kind of note in some ways. That just left me flat. 
the toast at the end just actually undid some of the drama of the fire earlier. I don't know how to feel. I don't know what to say. There, nothing that you just said is not accurate. But I still have to come down to say screen this movie. If you have any interest in movies in general, if you have any interest in storytelling and horror movies specifically, screen this movie. One of the reasons I can say that with some confidence is it is one hour and 11 minutes long. Yeah. It is not a long movie. If this movie were two hours or pushing two hours and it felt the same way at that length, I would say, I don't know, maybe you don't really need to watch this movie. You can understand the cultural import of it without having to spend the time to focus on it. But for an hour and 11 minutes, the things that it does well, it does well enough. They are worth watching. Go ahead and watch this movie. I say screen it. Oh, okay. I'm going to join you on that. Yes, screen it. Honestly, if you if you told me you watched it, but you said, after the monster escapes, I put on something else and came back to it later and watched it in two half-hour blocks, I'd be like, I oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that kind of would work. We kind of let you flush that pacing issue out. In my opinion, yeah, screen it. So, with various levels of enthusiasm, we're both saying screen. Yep. The next question is, (laughs) I can't believe I'm asking this about Frankenstein, but revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Could you imagine somebody making a sequel to Frankenstein? A sequel to Frankenstein? Yes. Plenty. Multiple franchises <laughs> worth. Can you imagine someone making a reboot of Frankenstein? Yes, many <laughs> franchises worth. That's the thing. This is simultaneously the way this film ends, and that's to do a to do a revive. To do this story continued, there's plenty of openings. There's a thousand offshoots you can do. You can do this story immediately after. You can do this story decades, generations, so far after. I could see an interesting story of doing a prequel about any of these people. Give me a story about Fritz the Assistant and how he wound up working here. You've got something. Give me a story that feels like it's nothing related to. Give it give me a story about this like this down on their luck criminal and the bad things and them trying and hoping to get another chance and dying and revealing at the end that they were one of the parts to the monster and that their second chance was karmically bad. You can do a lot oh, of horribly like weird that. interesting weird things. and artsy. Yeah. There's a lot of hooks to do into this story again as this movie presents the story it is telling. So there's plenty of opportunities. And plenty have been done. But that doesn't mean there's lacking any. Reboot is interesting because that's where you wind up into the conflict of are you rebooting the movie or are you rebooting a different interpretation of the book? Which is a whole different thing. Rebooting the movie though you wind up with exactly the same things. Are you telling this story again? Are you telling it when this one is? Are you telling it in a different era? 
is the version of this where the new technology is sleek, white, Apple Store Chrome building a cyborg for the first time and fighting him on top of an electric windmill at the end? A different tale? A different interpretation? A revamp of this film? There's a lot of options here. They are all legitimate. I'm not doing my normal other versions of this story list because there's too many because of exactly what I'm describing here. Yeah, that, that's why it's it's so hard to answer this question because or ask this question because it's been answered in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So to try to break it down to what am I most interested in, I don't think I want a revival of this movie in that I want another sequel. There are four or five sequels to this movie, depending on how you count and what you count. So I don't need another movie in the same continuity as Carl Lemley's 1931 production of Frankenstein. But if they were going to make one, I'd want one of those interesting offshoots like you described, like the backstory of the assistant or the story of a criminal who became part of the monster. So that makes me turn to reboots. And I am probably always going to be interested in a reboot of Frankenstein because it is such an elemental story. There is so much depth to the original book. And there are so many different things one can focus on in making that kind of reboot. Yeah, I guess that is kind of where I'm landing to. And there are a lot of those kind of reboots that I have seen over the years. There was one in, or it was around 1980, give or take, that was essentially set in a modern-day university hospital. Okay, yeah. And, And there was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was created as kind of a spiritual successor to the very successful Bram Stoker's Dracula movie. Yes, but there was is one that keeps sticking with me is a early seventies, like British TV two part movie that was I think I probably saw it around nineteen seventy four seventy five or so. So I was like maybe when I was nine or ten years old. Again, way too young. Which was it was called Frankenstein: The True Story. Ooh, well, not the true story, but a pretty good relatively faithful adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel. And it was very well acted, extremely well produced and designed. And it was gory and brutal and nasty in a way, just in its kind of accurate depiction of eight, uh, of, of late 18th century, early 19th century medicine. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot about that was that was shocking, but it it pulled me into that story such that when later I read the the book, it was a lot of the imagery from that TV movie that is what came to mind. Okay, that makes some sense. And there are some other interesting takes. The Bride, starring Sting, <laughs> was kind of a retelling of the Bride of Frankenstein story, but more the the subplot of the novel that became the first sequel to the 31 movie, The Bride of Frankenstein. That was that 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 was an interesting movie. 
you can make a very nice, clear case that the 2014 excellent film Ex Machina is a version of this telling of Frankenstein, where the bad brain picked is an AI trained on the entirety of the internet. And then it has interesting commentaries on whether or not that was a bad thing to install. There's interesting... That, that can be taken as a version of this film and the story this one told being a different story than the book in that sense, even. I think you're right that there, the ideas of Frankenstein have permeated the culture and keep getting retold and reused far beyond literal adaptations of Frankenstein. I think we're saying reboot. Yeah. Give me more reboots of Frankenstein. Do something different, and I'm, I'm part of your audience. And in some delightful way, we're saying reboot because even if we said rest in peace, we all know that filmmakers will just dig up the parts they need and keep using it. Oh, there's no way I can top that. Thank you. That is great. <laughs> Well, with that, I think that has been this episode of the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. Thank you once again for downloading the IMMP and for listening. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. More spookiness in this month. <laughs> and where can they find you? Oh, you can find me online as by Matthew Porter. So go to bymatthewporter.com, uh, by Matthew Porter on, uh, on Twitter, and... You'll find me under that name most places. Ian, where can people find you? I'm doing my experiments at Item Crafting on Twitter, as Item Crafting Live on Twitch, and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter as IMMPcast, and you can find us online at immproject.com, and that's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes, uh, and you'll also find a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much, uh, those who are supporting us there, and if you do, you get additional audio content, and if you join at the movie club level, you get a surprise DVD in your mail every few months. Exactly. And you'll also, on that website, find a link to our YouTube page. And you'll be finding more content on that YouTube page. There's a video of our live presentation at Nondescon from earlier in, uh, in this fall. And also, we're posting video versions on YouTube of all of our episodes, because some people find that uh, an easier place to to find and listen to podcasts. Some people find that to be an easier place to share them with others. So we're making those available on YouTube as well. And as far as supporting the podcast, the best thing you can do is let your friends know about it, share it with others, maybe give a, a nice review uh, wherever you do get your podcasts, and that just helps more people find us. But especially, we just want to thank you for listening. In the meantime. Go find something new to watch.